Well, good morning. I'm Stephen. I'm the pastor here, and we are in a series called Invincible Joy. This letter is really all about having joy in any circumstance in your life. And one of the things that keeps us from having joy, one of the things that actually sucks the joy out of our lives is conflict. When conflict erupts, when it's not dealt with in the proper way, it's hard to have joy. You can try to say, well, all right, yeah, this thing really is awful or this conflict is, is frustrating, but I've got other things going on in my life. Uh, what tends to happen is that the, the tension, the, the negativity of that conflict sort of bleeds into all the other areas. And so it's hard to have joy in the midst of conflict. Um, and then it's awful when that conflict is part of the church. Our church is called Harbor because we want to be a harbor for people. We want to be a place of rest where you sort of avoid the storms and you come in and you're able to rest and then to be equipped to re-engage your life. What happens when the church is part of what's wrong with your life? Uh, what happens when conflict erupts in the church and so this stops being a harbor? This stops being a place of rest. This just adds the tension and the anxiety. Um, that's what's going on. That was what was going on in the church that Paul was writing to. And so he addresses conflict in the church uh, in the passage we're going to look at today. He's going to show us how to handle conflict so that our invincible joy can be restored and then to grow even deeper. So we're going to look at Philippians 4, verses 1 to 3. Uh, the verses are in your bulletin. They're also going to be on the screen. So friends, listen, um, God has something to say to you through his word. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, Help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. What we're going to see here is how the gospel untangles conflict. How the gospel untangles conflict. And so we're going to look at three points, and these are three points that form what God's word is for us today. And, and point number one, God wants to say to you today from verse one is that, he just wants to tell you, I love you. God wants to say, I love you. I don't know what you think about God, when you think about God. I don't know what images come into your mind when you think about God. But the Bible wants you to know that the front face of God to you right now is God saying, I love you. I care about you. In fact, this first point really in some ways sums up the message of the entire Bible. The whole Bible from beginning to end is God saying to the world, I love you. God, and so God is speaking through Paul to these people in this city called Philippi. And then God is speaking through Paul to us today. So what Paul says, God means for you and me today. So I want to look at the first word of, the, of verse 1. It's the word therefore. And I want you to learn to love the word therefore, especially when it's in the Bible. 
Um, there's a reason the word therefore is there. <laughs> and what I want you to do is I want you, when you see the word therefore in the Bible, I want this to remind you to be gospel-centered. Okay, that's the first value of our church. We have five values in our church, and value number one, the one that's chief uh, and most important, is that we are gospel-centered. This means that we try to revolve our entire lives around the good news of Jesus. And this word, therefore, helps us. It's, it's one way that we can remember that our lives start with the grace and the love of Jesus. Okay, because Paul is going to give this church a command. He's going to give them a command, and God is going to give us a command. But first he says, therefore, reminding them that all of what he's about to say is based on what he has just said. Okay? That's what the word therefore means. Right? I've said all this stuff, therefore, this. And the way that this word shows up in the New Testament, and you find this all over Paul's writings, is that he tends to say, here's the amazing news of what God has done for you and how much God loves you and all the ways God's working in your life. Therefore, here comes a command. That's the order that you find over and over and over again. And so in Philippians 4 verse 1, it begins with this word, therefore, because Paul has just spent chapters 2 and 3, proclaiming a gospel about Jesus that has set us free so that we don't have to be saved by our performance anymore. The gospel, the good news that Paul is preaching has all kinds of broad-ranging blessings in ways that it affects our lives. What he's just said in chapter 3 is that he used to be on this rat race. He used to be on this treadmill that ran faster and faster and faster and faster. And the more he felt like he was obeying, the faster that treadmill got. So it was never, ever enough. Do you ever feel that way with God? I mean, there's so many people for whom religion means, oh man, okay, I got to do all this stuff. Otherwise, God won't love me. Philippians chapter three, Paul just got finished saying, like, I did all of this, but now all of my religious observance is like, it's, it's dung, it's trash, it's garbage. Because what I have found is acceptance through faith in Jesus. There is this free gift of a relationship with God, not one that I have to earn, but one that Jesus blesses me with because he was good enough. And so this gospel, Paul preached, and he then, if you were here at the beach yesterday, or if you were there last week, um, he just said, we are now citizens of heaven. So we've been adopted into God's family, we are his children, and we are citizens of heaven. And so we have God's presence and God's power with us always. Again, we don't earn a relationship with God, it is a gift when we confess our sins and begin to follow Jesus. Therefore, right, therefore, there's a command coming. But God's not ready to command us yet. Even though he's already said, you're not saved by your obedience, you're not saved by being good enough, you're saved because I love you, and you're now citizens of heaven and children of my family. But still, I want to tell you, if you didn't get it already, I want to tell you that I love you before I ask you to do anything. That's what he says in verse 1. Look at it. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, Stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. And so he says, my brothers, like we're family. 
Paul is saying, hey, we're all brothers here. We all have God as father. We're all adopted, so that makes us family. So we are brothers and sisters. And in this passage, um, some people get hung up on, on this, and some people don't, but this word brothers is a clear reference to the men and women in the church. Okay, we know this because two of the brothers that Paul is addressing are Euodia and Syntyche. Um, and we know they're women because in verse 3 he says, I ask you, true companion, to help these women. So the Bible often does this. The Bible often refers to men and women with plural masculine nouns. And this can feel frustrating. Let me sort of pause here just real quick. It, it can be frustrating to some people in our day who really want to make sure that women feel like they have equal status with God. Um, and that is very legitimate. Like, that's a legitimate concern. We don't want women to feel like they're second-class citizens. We don't want women to feel like they are anything less than men in the church or in God's family. And, and I can say that back then, in the ancient world, this was also a concern in the church. They had a similar concern. They didn't want women to be re relegated or, or, um, or oppressed. And so the church really wanted men and women to know that they had an equal standing before God as followers of Jesus. And so one of the ways that the Bible writers chose to address this and to affirm this is by calling women brothers and sons. There's another place where this happens in Galatians 3. It's funny because it says in verse 28 of Galatians 3, it says, there is neither Jew nor Greek, male nor female, slave nor free. You're all one in Christ. And then it says, and you're all sons of God and sons of Abraham through Jesus. And so the Bible is, um, says that men and women are sons of God, they're brothers, as an effort to say that there is no distinction. So it's like saying, hey men, before you think that you might be any better, because that's what a lot of the culture says, I want to make it clear that everyone in God's family has an equal status. They're, we're all sons. We are all brothers. We are all before God equal. And so we all have the same status before God. Now, doing it this way doesn't play well in our day-to-day, -day, but anytime we read an old text, it's important for us to read it as it was intended and not simply how it sounds today. So I hope that makes sense. If you have more questions, I'd love to chat with you afterwards. Um, but what we see here is, again, this love of God that's being shared with all of his people. Paul says, whom I love and long for, and he calls them my beloved. And I just want to highlight that this is real, and it's very, very personal. Paul cares deeply for these people, and he wants to be with them again. He's longing to see them again. He wants so badly. He's in jail in part because he loves them, because he was faithful to give them the truth of Jesus. Um, he's in jail, so he has oriented his life around serving them. And this is a reflection of the heart of God. This is how God feels about his people. God loves you and he longs for you. God longs to spend time with you. God has set it up. You might not like that God set it up this way, but the way God set it up is in part that he wants you to read this book and hear him speaking to you in it. Sometimes that's difficult, right? 
Sometimes it's hard to hear God's voice when we read the Bible, but that's his design. Like God's design, he's given us this word. He inspired this word to be written so that for all time throughout history, his people could read it and hear God's voice speaking to them. And so one of the reasons you come to church on Sunday is because it's hard to read the Bible on your own sometimes. And so you come and you have this experience. Like we're reading this passage where Paul's writing to this church in Philippi, but it really is God speaking to you. He wants you to hear his voice in your life. He wants you to experience his love right now as he tells you, I want to spend time with you. I want you to hear from me. I want you to be in a place where we're going to learn how you can hear my voice in the Bible every day. And so he longs to spend time with you. He longs to speak to you through his word. He longs to have you believe that he is with you wherever you go. He longs for you to know that no matter what is happening in your life, he is caring for you. No matter what is happening in your life, no matter where you've been, no matter where you're going, he will be with you and he's working together all things to bring about good in your life. This is what God wants for you. It's an expression of his love. And the more you know how God works in the Bible, the more you read the Bible, the more you see, oh yeah, this really is how God thinks and feels about me. And you develop lenses. You get a prescription that enables you, like the Bible gives you a prescription so that you can see God at work in the world. You can see God at work in the people around you. You can see how God works things together. And so you want to look for these types of reminders when you read the Bible, when you listen to the Bible, when you read books about the Bible. So, so Paul says, I love you and I long for you. And then verse 1, he also says, you are my joy and crown. You're my joy and crown. And, and every word in the Bible is inspired. And sometimes we read through it so quickly that we just sort of miss things. But he says, like, my brothers whom I long, love and long for, my joy and crown. What does he mean there? Well, he's saying that you give me joy. Your existence, the fact that you're following Jesus gives me joy. And you are my crown. You are my crowning achievement. It's like you are my reward. In some ways, this is like he's saying, you are proof that I'm not crazy. Like, I was in your city. And I met Lydia and the women who were praying by the riverside. Acts 16 describes this. And I shared the gospel of Jesus with you, and you believed. And we formed this community, this church, was birthed out of this prayer meeting, right, that happened there. And I shared with you, and I taught you, and I instructed you, and, we, and this church was birthed. And then I left. And you're still following Jesus. You started following Jesus because I came and I spoke his word to you. But for you to continue to follow Jesus after I left means that you didn't just meet with me, but you met with God. That God put his spirit in you, that you now have a relationship with God that's even apart from me. Like I help that, I contribute to that. And Paul has this sense that, man, you are your proof that I'm not just a persuasive speaker. You know, that I don't just manipulate people and they just, oh, whatever you say, Paul, we're mesmerized by your passion and by your fervor and by your life story. It's like, even when I'm gone, you're still following after him. You're my crown. I'm so, like, you, you are proof 
not just of my ministry, but your proof of the gospel, that Jesus actually saves people, that Jesus um, changes lives. And you know, God has placed the eggs of his reputation in our baskets. Did you know that? Do you know that God's reputation on earth is almost entirely dependent on what his people do? And so when you show the love of God for the world through your life, you prove that God is real. You are proof of God's love for the world. And even your imperfect life that continues to go back to the cross and ask for forgiveness, right? Even your imperfect life that owns your imperfections and is willing to confess them is further proof of the power of the crucified Jesus. It, it, it speaks about the necessity of Jesus dying for us and rising again so that we could be saved. And so, friends, this is what it means to center our lives on the love of God, to be gospel-centered. It's to let this God who loves us be at the core of who we are. Without this beginning, God's commands can be crushing. We're gonna look at a command here that, that Paul's gonna give, uh, that God's gonna give to us, and in some ways it's going to crush you. Um, and without this gospel centeredness without the beginning without beginning with the gospel um, the command would crush you and so thinking about this that God gives us the gospel and then he gives us the commands it reminds me of a particular verse in Proverbs in Proverbs 25:11 it says this it says a word fitly spoken is like apples of gold in a setting of silver I still remember the first time I read this verse. I didn't know it existed. I didn't read it in the Bible. I read it in a book. It was an autobiography. And, uh, and the, the, the autobiography quoted this verse. And immediately, it sort of gripped my heart because I thought, oh, wow, that's, that's really cool. Like, go Bible. <laughs> you know, like, that's a really neat image. And I imagined, you know, the yellow gold being beautiful and shiny and then yet when that yellow gold is centered and has a backdrop of silver, like that shiny metal, the, the yellow gold pops. The yellow gold is even more glorious. And when I think about things like the word therefore, when I think about how God gives us the gospel and then gives us the commands, I think about this. I think about this verse because the commands of God are life-giving. When God tells us to do something, he tells us not to do something else, that's designed to give us life. It's designed to help us really live, okay? God's commands lead us on the path of flourishing so that we can experience the fullness of God in our lives. So we're talking about living a life that we can rejoice in, a life that we can be proud of, a life that we know is meaningful both now and forever. And so the commands of God are gold. God's commands are gold. And yet they are even more gloriously presented when they come in the silver setting of the gospel. 
And so don't be confused by religion that says, if you do this, maybe God will bless you. The gospel says, God has blessed you abundantly. Now follow after Jesus. Therefore, my beloved, therefore, those that I long for and, and, and you are my joy and my crown. And so this is what I want you to get from the word therefore and from the love in this verse that God loves you. You don't earn God's love. You receive it before you obey. So God says, I love you, number one. Number two, God says, now love each other. Now love each other. This is verse two. And it's funny because these two points kind of summarize the whole Bible, don't they? The whole Bible, the message of the whole Bible, God is saying, I love you, now love each other. It's the message of the Bible. In verse 2, there's this specific call to two women in the church, Euodia and Syntyche. Paul says, I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. So there's a conflict that's going on, a conflict between two of these women in the church, and there's no detail. We don't know what the conflict was about. And I think maybe some of the blessing of the lack of specifics, because we don't know what the conflict is about, then we can take what Paul does here and we can apply it to every conflict in the church. Sometimes there's weird stuff going on like with circumcision or with like food laws or arguing over which of the Old Testament we're supposed to follow versus not. And you read that stuff and you're like, well, I don't know, like this certainly doesn't apply to me because I'm not struggling with how much of the Old Testament am I supposed to obey, right? And so, but we have no specifics here. So that means that in every conflict that we deal with, we can apply these things. And so, and I guess I, I want to mention too that it says that these, these women are working hard in the ministry of the church, right? They have labored side by side with Paul in the gospel. That's what verse 3 says. And this shouldn't surprise us, again, because this church was birthed out of a women's prayer meeting in Acts chapter 16. Um, Lydia seems to have become the patron both of Paul and his band of ministers. So it seems like she began to financially support Paul. And then the, she became, it seems like the church probably met at her house. And so, and we have women like this in our church. We have strong women of faith who lead life groups, who serve as elder advisors and deacon assistants, who volunteer and help lead in different aspects of the church. And so we shouldn't be surprised that Paul would um, identify these two women as leaders in the church and, and call them in this way. And what he calls them to do is he says these two women need to agree in the Lord. So there's some kind of a, a conflict, some kind of a schism, some kind of a problem between the two of them. And Paul says, look, this isn't just two people who can't get along. He says this is a gospel issue. So Paul says this is a big deal. These, these two women need to agree in the Lord. So you might think, well, gosh, like, aren't there bigger issues? Aren't there bigger fish to fry? Aren't there bigger things to talk about than these two women getting along in this church? Like Paul could have written a bunch of other things, and, and he doesn't. He addresses this because this is absolutely fundamental to the mission of Jesus. Right? There is, we could say, it, there's almost nothing more important than this to Jesus. Why do I say that? Well, because Jesus said so. Jesus' whole mission 
was to love the world and then get his people to love each other so that they would show the world the love of God. And he says this in John 13, 35. Jesus says, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So the world will know that you follow me if love is, uh, if you love one another. And then John 17, 21, it's even, it ratchets it up even higher. He says, he's saying to God, he's praying, he's saying, he says, let them all, all of my followers, let them all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The world is full of religions, lots of different religions, lots of different philosophies, lots of different ways of living, lots of different ways to be blessed, lots of different ways to have the best life possible, right? There's so many different views of God. There's so many different ideas about who God is, what God's like, what God thinks, how God feels, how to relate to God. Jesus said, the world would believe that Jesus is the revelation of the true and living God if his people are one. Dang. That's a bad idea, Jesus. Right? I mean, no wonder. No wonder the church's testimony is so ineffective because we aren't doing what Paul asks these two women to do, which is to agree in the Lord. They're not unified. And so as we look at this, and I, I want to talk about what does this mean, agree in the Lord? Um, and as we do this, I want you to think about the conflicts that you might have with others of God's people, with other people who are Christians, because that's, that's what we're talking about here. Paul isn't saying you have to agree with every other person in the world, but he's saying it's, you, you, these, you, Odia, Syndica, you need to agree in the Lord. And so what does this mean for us in our conflicts and whether it's with someone else in this church, whether it's someone else, I mean, in, in this church can be spouses, can be friends, can be children, can be parents, Right? We're called here to agree in the Lord with the rest of our church and even other Christians. And so what does this mean? What does this mean? I mean, we could say it this way. In our conflicts, where does Jesus lead us to agree? And I think that we can see this fleshed out maybe in three ways. There's three things that we should agree about when we have conflicts in the church. First, we should agree about our union with Christ. We should agree about our union with Christ. The phrase that we are to agree in the Lord means Jesus is the Lord. He's the Lord Jesus. And so the idea, we should be able to agree that we are both following him. Can we agree about that? I mean, that we have so much more in common and what we have in common is so much more important than where we differ. Whatever is separating us, whatever is separating you, 
is it more important than the reality that Jesus died for you both? And that you've both committed to following him as the Lord of your life. Is this really more important than that? And this phrase, in the Lord, it usually means out of the fullness of your relationship to Jesus. And so it, it doesn't just mean, look, we are both in the Lord, and so we should be able to agree at least about that. And so maybe we could at least just start by saying, here's where we agree. Let's put that down. Let's articulate that so that when we look at where we disagree, maybe that can be put into perspective. But this also means that when you believe in Jesus, you are in the Lord. And so out of the fullness of your relationship to Jesus, not only does he love you, not only has he brought you into his family, but you have his power, you have his love, you have his understanding, you have his ability to love others. And so Paul is saying, agree with each other with the strength that Jesus gives you. In my life, when I feel like I'm at the end of my rope and I'm just like done with a conflict, when I'm ready to write someone else off, when I'm ready to walk away, when I'm ready to say, in a really bad way, agree to disagree. When I do that, sometimes it's healthy. Sometimes it's really healthy because you put it into perspective and all right, we're gonna agree to disagree about this, but we're really still gonna love each other and care about each other. Um, there are times when I say agree to disagree as a passive aggressive move to tell somebody they're an idiot. <laughs> um, when I'm done, when I'm at the end of my rope, there are some things that I review and I realize that though I feel like I'm at the end of my rope, I have like not even begun. I have not even begun to draw from the well of Jesus's love. That I am just scratching the surface of all that he has given to me. What do I mean by that? Well, the second way that we agree in the Lord is we agree about our forgiveness with God. So if you want to, know how to agree in the Lord with someone else, dealing with conflicts, trying to untangle the knot of conflict, you need to agree about our forgiveness with God. The parable of the unforgiving servant. Uh, there's a king and a servant, and the servant owes the king $10 million dollars. And the king says, pay up. And the servant says, I, uh, uh, please have mercy on me. And he throws himself at the king's feet and he begs him for mercy. And the king says, all right, I forgive your debt. $10 million, I forgive your debt. And then the guy gets up and, oh my goodness, could you imagine? I mean, we talk about student loan debt being forgiven. Could you imagine having a debt like that that would enslave you forever and your family for generation after generation after generation and then all of a sudden, you're free. You're free because the king had compassion. And then that guy, that servant goes out and he finds a buddy and the buddy owes him like $10,000. I mean, it's not a small amount of money. He owes him 10 grand. He goes, you pay me. And the, this guy falls to his face and says exactly the same thing, exactly the same words. 
to this forgiven servant. Please, I'm sorry, I'll pay you back. Like, just, just, just have mercy on me. And the guy says no. And the guy throws him in jail. Jesus says the king found out and the king took that guy, that unforgiving servant, and threw him in prison until he'd pay everything back. And when I think about that passage, when I think about that parable that Jesus tells, the message is very clear. I'm in debt to God $10 million. I'm in debt to God $10 million because of my sin, because of all of the ways that I have ignored him, that I have rebelled against him, that I have chased after my own way, that I have done what I thought was right and what I thought was best. There's no one in my life even close to a $10,000 debt with me. How could we not forgive from the heart after what God has forgiven us? And so we can agree about our forgiveness with God in the midst of our conflict. You know, this might look like us stepping back and saying again, okay, wait, how can we agree? We are children of God. We both love Jesus. We're trying to love each other, but we don't yet. Um, We're struggling here. We both have been forgiven so much more than we owe each other. And can we step back and remember the therefore? Can we remember the gospel that brought us to this place of being in the Lord? And is it possible that we might be able to find forgiveness for each other? as we agree about our forgiveness with God. I know that with some conflicts, there is really deep wounding. I know that some of you have been very deeply wounded by others. But it's still... When I read what God has done for us, I still think that the ways that I've been deeply wounded are like this compared to the ocean. I mean, just step back and realize how much God has forgiven you. It doesn't make it easy. But how can we not agree in the Lord about our forgiveness with God. We're just scratching the surface of God's forgiving love. What I have found is that the more painfully I have to, I have to forgive, the bigger that cup of God's love in my life gets, the more of the ocean I get to drink in. We say we want to know God. God says, all right, if you want to know me, I want to teach you what forgiving love is. And in order for me to do that, I need you to experience pain like you've never experienced before. And I'm going to move you to forgive. And then you'll know what it's like to be me. Or at least you'll scratch another layer deeper. And then the last way I think that agreeing in the Lord fleshes out is um, that we want to agree, uh, agree about God's understanding. We want to agree about God's understanding. 
This is related to forgiveness, but it's different. Um, God understands you perfectly, intimately, and infinitely. God knows exactly why you have done everything that you have ever done. God knows all the pain, all the anguish. God knows everything going on in your present. He knows everything that's happened to you in the past. God understands all of the pain that your family has brought you, all of the joys, all of the despair, everything. He understands it all. And so when you do something that is just so messed up, when you do something that makes you an abject failure in his sight, God looks at you through tearful eyes and says, look, I know why you did this and I'm not going anywhere. I still love you. I'm still with you. Let's work on this together. And when you can agree about God's understanding of you, God says, would you please stretch to try to understand them? Stretch across the divide and let me give you my lenses that help me to see him or her and why he or she did that. So we need to understand the other the way that God understands us. So God says, I love you. God says, now love each other. <clears throat> the third thing that God says is, get help. Get help. Verse three. And it's interesting because like all three of these points really do sum up the entire message of the Bible, don't they? <laughs> the whole Bible is, I love you. Now love each other and get help. Get help because you can't do this alone. Um, look at verse three. Paul says, yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women. So true companion, we're not sure who this is. It feels like a nickname um, of somebody. It could be Luke, one of Paul's traveling uh, companions in ministry. Um, we don't know who it is for sure, but we know what it means. What it means is you can't do this alone. There are some knots that you can untie and then there are some knots that are such a bundle and jumble of tangledness that you just can't even, you don't even know where to begin. There's no thread sticking out to even start pulling on something. And when that happens, you need help. The, the second value of our church right after gospel-centered is that we are growing in community. And we say that we're growing in community because we can't do this alone. They needed help to be unified. We need help. We need the perspective of others. We need the insights of others. We need their, uh, their experiences of God. We need them outside of this, right, to look in and to speak to us, to speak to the conflict, to be able to help us. Um, and so, yeah, so we need help. So if you have one of these conflicts going on, get help. Don't be in it alone. Get help. And the church should be the perfect place to get help. 
because, and, and I think our church is a very, very good place to get help. Our church is a place of real love, of real acceptance of broken and struggling people because we are a church filled with broken and struggling people. Um, here, you don't have to hide your sin. You don't have to hide your brokenness because we are a group of people who have the story of Jesus at the heart of who we are. We know we're not good enough. And so we believe in a God who has seen all of our sin, who's heard our confession, and who has taken the punishment for the destruction and the pain and the disintegration and the lostness that our sin has caused to ourselves, to other people, and to the world. Like, we know that the fault of what is wrong with the world lies in us. And so when you need help, you're going to find help here with people who won't judge you because we haven't been judged by God. We will help um, because we need help. And so... And this is a call for us, like as a gospel-centered community of people. Like this also calls us to remember and be like, oh yeah, that's right, that's who we are. <laughs> we need to grow in this. And so you can offer the gospel. You can offer your experience of God's love, of God's forgiveness, of God's understanding. And this is a powerful help to bringing people together. And when you are able to offer this to others in relationship, you become what verse 3 describes you become a true companion of Jesus because Jesus wants to care for us in our church and to care for others who are coming to our church and there are some things that he won't do without us and when you offer God's love his forgiveness and your experience of it when you offer your ability to understand where people are coming from and why they might do what they've done you become a true companion of Jesus and a minister in our church. Let's pray together. Jesus, we thank you for your love. We thank you for your understanding, your forgiveness, your patience. You suffer long with us. You strive and you strive and you strive. You relentlessly pursue us and we're thankful. And we thank you that when you call us to this kind of love, to this kind of understanding, when you push us to agree with others in you, we thank you for giving us the gospel first. We thank you for reminding us of your love first because we can't do this without you. And we pray that you would continue to shape our church community into a family that loves like this. I pray, God, for everyone who's dealing with a conflict in our church or with another member of your family. Jesus, work in us and help us to agree, help us to bring reconciliation and help us to look to you and follow you in this. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. We're gonna receive our offering next and so if you wanna give today, prepare your gifts. If you want to give online, you can do that. The instructions for doing that are on the screen. And if you have automated your giving or you give online during the week and you might have forgotten, 
then remember now. Like, use this time to remember the gifts that you have given to God and turn them into an act of worship and offer your gift to him. And then remember, too, if you have a connection card, please fill this out. You can drop it in the offering basket as it's passed by.